is case 88. In the Hekigan Roku. Zhuangsha is guiding and aiding living beings. Introduction. The established methods of our school are thus. They break two into three. For profound talk, entering into principle, you too must be piercing and penetrating. Taking charge of the situation, he hits home and smashes to pieces the golden chains and the hidden barrier. He acts according to the imperative, so that he obliterates all tracks and traces. Tell me, where is this, where is there confusion? For those who have an eye on their forehead, I bring this case to see. The case. Zhuang Sha, teaching the community, said, the old adepts everywhere all speak of guiding and aiding living beings. Supposing they encounter three kinds of sick person, how would they guide them? With a blind person, they could pick up the gavel or raise the whisk, but he couldn't see. With a deaf person, he wouldn't hear the point of words. With a mute person, if they had him speak, he wouldn't be able to speak. But how would they guide such people? If they could not guide these people, then the Buddha Dharma has no effect. A monk asked Yunmen for instruction on this. Yunmen said, bow. The monk bowed and rose. Yunmen then poked him with his staff. The monk drew back. Yunmen said, you're not blind. Then Yunmen called him closer. When the monk approached, Yunmen said, you're not deaf. Next, Yunmen said, do you understand? The monk said, I do not understand. Yunmen said, you're not mute. At this, the monk had an insight. The verse. Blind. Deaf, mute, soundless, without any adjustments to potentialities. In the heavens, on earth, laughable, lamentable. Lilu can't discern the true form. How can Shi Kuang recognize the mystic tune? How can this compare to sitting alone beneath an empty window? The leaves fall, the flowers bloom each in its own time. Again, Zretu said, do you understand or not? An iron hammerhead with no hole. So, This is the last full day of our session. As if you did not know that. And maybe that's what you're thinking about. And tomorrow we are going back, returning. Back to the familiar, back to the comfortable, 
back to doing what we want and maybe avoiding what we don't want. Observe what happens knowing that tomorrow you're going home. What happens to the mind? Where does it go? Watch the tendency of the mind to wrap it up prematurely. Thinking tomorrow will come and here's what we're going to do tomorrow. What do we practice if we think this way and what happens next? Or how does what we practice affect what happens next if we practice this way? This is a story, I've told this before a while ago, about a, a carpenter who was about to retire. And uh, he had uh, he worked for somebody, he had a great reputation of building impeccable homes. Everything was perfectly aligned, everything was very durable, very well-fitting. Each home he puts, he put his heart and soul into. And the owner of the company was very pleased with him. So, just as he was about to retire, very close to retirement, his boss came to him and said, there's just one more thing I need you to do for me. I need you to build one more home for me. He said, okay, kind of dragging his feet. Then he started building it. And it did finish, but he did not do it in the same way he built up to that point. His mind, his heart was not on it anymore. His heart was set on retirement. So he built it very fast, cut corners, but finished the project, went to his boss, told him it's done. His boss hands, hands him a key and says, this is your house as a gift from me. And that's what happens. We eat what we cook, right? What we do matters greatly. How we do it, how we practice. Right? So it means for us here, nothing has changed. The fact that we have an idea of going back to something tomorrow really shouldn't change anything because it's not changing anything. There's still Zazen next, still Kinhin, still dinner, right? still chanting the lineage afterwards. Still we are required to practice awareness, paying attention, still waking up early in the morning. And who knows, maybe other things too. We don't know what we're going to encounter. Yet we check out. And we all do it. I mean, 
It's not. Don't feel bad if you think this way, because we all do it. We have to recognize that we all do it, and then we have to recognize that there is another way to be and to practice and to live. A way of fully respecting every step, choosing every step, every breath. So, it is the last full day of Sashin, and we are going back tomorrow. So going back, how does this experience change anything? Or what does it change? Does it create an opening for you? How will you move through from one way of expressing yourself or experiencing something to another way of expressing and experiencing? How will you listen? How will you see? How will you speak? Moving forward, going back to the familiar. The tendency, strong tendency, is to go back to acting the same way we acted before. Because that's also, that's very fitting with the familiar. But the other way is to use what we cultivate. And change the way we function. Change the way we see, hear, speak. So we are moving into, we're moving from what we may call quietude, stillness, to what we may call everyday life, motion conventional, everyday life. And, and there seems to be a, a passage from very tight container, very specific way of acting, where everything is assigned, there is a very specific schedule to follow, to having more freedom. There is, of course, we have schedules to uh, maintain, but there seems to be more freedom and different responsibilities. So how do we take what we cultivate and move that through and not leave it behind? How do we not compartmentalize this experience? And then reminisce. How do we make it seamless? You know, the, the idea that we are moving from one thing to another is actually, if you look at it deeply, you see that it's made up. Appearances do change, but in essence, we're always moving, and in essence, we never leave and never arrive. But we believe everything we see to represent reality as it is, so it looks like we are somewhere else. It sounds like 
we are somewhere else. So then, of course, we behave and speak like being somewhere else. Is it wrong to adjust and adapt? Or is adjusting and adapting uh, contradicting seamlessness? You know, what we, we label, we label everything, even this, we label that. And then we fall into the trap of our own labels. Because each compartment, each room has a door, and on the door there is a plaque. This one says Sashin, Zen practice. So we come out of this room, and then we walk through an imagined corridor, and then we enter another room that says home. We come out of that, enter another room that says work. So it's, it's true that there is that, but it's also true that the essence is always present. And what we're practicing here is that. Essence. Moving away from perceptions. Leaving it behind, leaving it aside for a little while. I think it was the last, in the past uh, book discussion, I talked a little bit about the example of watching a bird. Right? And we think that we know what we're looking at because we, haven't, we give it a name. But in reality, it's devoid of a name. It's devoid of a label. And it's totally devoid of what we think about it. Yet, we are interacting with what we think about it, rather than what it is. Because to truly interact with what it is, is to interact with what we are. Which means to realize seamlessness between you and what you're watching. Right? It seems, it seems to be flying in the sky, but it is inseparable from what we call the sky. And the sky is inseparable from what we call earth. And the one who is observing is also inseparable from what we, or what he or she stands on. Where are the gaps? What I mentioned this morning about awareness practice, this is a very effective method to cut the gaps, to lose the gaps. Because if the awareness level is raised and maintained, then that is always there. And what we are aware of is waking us up to seamlessness. You move through. It really doesn't matter whether we sit, whether we eat, whether we walk, whether we sit down. It really doesn't matter. Essentially, yeah, that's not for any other reason, right? 
Why are you here? Not for any other reason. Why are we here to be present, to be aware of what? We don't know. But does it matter of what? Typically very much so. If we like what we are encountering or what we encounter, yes, I can be aware of that. But if I don't like it, I can maybe lower down the awareness level and then maybe devote 50% of attention and awareness and then the other 50% I can entertain myself with pleasurable thoughts, memories. Because it's not worth it. It's not worth my full attention and full awareness. Right? We quantify. Again, chop it up. So to pay attention, it's not a job or a chore. To pay attention is actually to choose life. To make a conscious decision of, I want to choose this. And end there. No parenthesis after that. Well, if it shows up like this, this and that. No, I want to choose this. 100% of it, 100% of me is given to this. I think, again, I think that if we don't do it correctly, it's exhausting. But if we are practicing correctly, being aware, then it's actually very relaxing because there's no one there to complain. There's no one there to label, to say, this is too difficult. It flows, it moves, it flies. So to move through, so to move between what we think, what we call stillness and what we call motion, to move from a sashin to everyday life, now we're here to clarify, actually to clarify the fundamental truth of seamlessness. But if we fail to awaken to this, to a point that it actually keeps shining through transitions, then what are we doing here? Now we are about halfway through our fall angle with the theme of, humi of humility. Right? It's, it's what we try to work on. And that means we have all taken the responsibility to deepen the understanding of unconditional, actionable humility through all activities. Maybe you can say seamless humility. And we choose this. We chose this for the sake of having a common and uniting element for the anger. But it's really what we're practicing all the time anyway. It is good to pay attention to that and raise that for a little while, for three months. But humility naturally permeates everything. As the idea of self begins to fade away. 
as we become more linked, more integrated. Even the word humility fades away. Because even that word comes from a gap. So as long as the idea of other does not fade away, the idea of self also will not fade away. So in Sishin, we move together as one body for that purpose. There are no gaps. Continuous, constant awareness. It actually quells the the voice or the thoughts that say, or may say, I'm succeeding, I'm failing, you know, I'm good at this, I'm bad at this. There's just no room anymore for those voices. Because the attention is completely on what is going on. And it fades away, it actually gets into the background and it all becomes white noise. The self, the other, the gap. Getting somewhere, not getting anywhere. It's all made up anyway. So how does the idea of other come to life? How do we create another? The eyes, ears, mouth. Simple. That's where it begins. You see, you define, you hear, you define, you say something about it. Or another says something about it, which keeps that cycle alive. So how does it fade away? While using the mouth, the ears, Guys, that has to do with knowing how to use those correctly. Knowing how to see, how to listen, how to speak skillfully. Speaking for the sake of what? The commentary says, though it fills his eyes, he does not see form. Though it fills his ears, he does not hear sound. Manjushri is always covering his eyes. Avalokiteshvara always blocks her ears. At this point, only if your eyes see as though blind and your ears hear as though deaf, you will be able to not be at odds with Zhuangsha's meaning. Do all of you know where the blind, deaf, and mute fellows are at? Do we know them? Can we use the eye as if blind? To use the eye as if blind is to use the eye as it was designed to be used. That's it. Not to spend too much time on the connotations. 
but to stay with what is being seen or to lose the eye to what is being seen. So what is being seen is seeing you and what is seeing is being seen at the same time. Total merging. Harmonizing. Not seeing, not hearing, not speaking. We, we practice same essence, all lineages, all Buddhist sects, right? Same essence, together. I mean, being here, we are Soto lineage, practicing in a Rinzai temple, practicing together, sharing the same struggles, same confusions. But we also share the challenges of knowing how to skillfully actualize what we clarify. How to skillfully actualize it, regardless of the depth of our understanding. Regardless of how far you think you've come, or how deep you think you've gone here in this machine. Still, all of us have the responsibility, the same responsibility, to actualize it to the best of our ability. Maybe that's the greatest challenge of our practice. Not Zazen. How do we live it? How do we share it with others? So on Thursday I spoke a little bit about knowing how to practice correctly while being immersed in the stillness of Zazen or Sushin and then knowing how to practice correctly while being immersed in the constant motion of everyday life, everyday responsibilities, which both are essentially seamless and the same. And I think that this koan points at the nature of true activity, true seamless activity, which is neither stillness nor motion. Because if we don't know how to live it, it's a waste of time. Or it's a very uncomfortable vacation. In the introduction it says, the established methods of our school are thus. They break two into three. For profound talk, entering into practice, into principle, you too, must be piercing and penetrating. You too. You meaning all of us. This is not written only for those who have achieved some kind of a title or level. It's for all of us. From day one. Taking charge of the situation. He hits home and smashes to pieces the golden chains and the hidden barrier. Golden chain, right? What are we trapped by? What we think it is, what we believe it to be. And smashes to pieces the hidden barrier. I get it, I don't get it. How do you actualize it? So he acts, in a, he acts according to the imperative so that he obliterates all tracks and all traces. 
Then it ends with a question. Tell me, where is the confusion? Where is the confusion? And the master of our practice comes to life when we learn how to not be trapped by what is realized or by what we think we have not realized as well. Not to become self-righteous about it too. If we don't learn how to actually live it in a seamless way, Zen will become, as the introduction says, a golden chain. Any realization can potentially be stolen by the thinking mind and become a conceptual wall, which actually turns us into a stone Buddha, lifeless Buddha. We have enough of those all around. We do not need more. Now, living Buddha is free of Buddhahood. Completely free of Buddhahood. So all the attention is directed to what is. That's why it says he acts according to the imperative. So he obliterates all tracks and traces. Of course, he's referring to Zhuangsha. But we're not here to conduct memorial service. We're here to take what we hear. Live it, actualize it, practice it. So you need to be the one who is acting according to the imperative. The one who obliterates all traces, all tracks. In the case, Shwansha, teaching the community, said... The old adepts everywhere all speak of guiding and aiding living beings. <coughs> Supposing they encountered three kinds of sick person, how would they guide them? The blind will not see visual teachings. The deaf will not hear verbal teachings. And the mute will not be able to respond verbally to any questions regarding the teachings. So how would we guide such people? And then he says, if we couldn't guide these people, then the Buddha Dharma has no effect. And the footnote says, how true these words are. You know, in the miscellaneous koans, we have a koan that says, how do you answer if you're asked, what is the meaning of Bodhidharmas coming from the West by someone in a dream? And then it says, if you cannot answer this, the teachings of the Buddha is worthless. It's very true. If we cannot answer it, not by quoting a text or showing, well, look, here's the answer. If our lives cannot answer it, What's left of the Buddha Dharma? We are, in a way, a link in a very long chain. You know, we chant the lineage 
so we can remember that. Every one of these people kept the practice alive, so we have a practice today. Right? If, 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 the, if the chain was broken, or would have been broken, we wouldn't be here today. There would not be a practice. And that's the responsibility. Not to go out there and stand on stage and preach. But to really be, to really live it. And if we're to understand the true meaning of Buddhism and how to practice it correctly in Zazen and in everyday life, then we do render the with the Dharma worthless. Can't even find our own way, let alone guiding and helping others. Now we say we, the purpose is to wake up to purposelessness, flavorlessness, selflessness. But where is the meaning there? What does it mean? The only way to understand that is to actually realize meaninglessness. And then to embody that true meaning. To realize and embody over and over and over and over and over again. Which again and again brings us back to the practice, back to the sitting, back to zazen. And then from there back to actualize. In a way, Zazen feeds life and life feeds Zazen, everyday life. Puts us back on the cushion. And the cushion puts us back in mingling. I spoke yesterday about drying up, completely withering, right? Because only through that, only through that, what is seen, heard, or spoken can be seen in the right way. Right? Only through that we can actually merge, unite, and then embody. Otherwise, it's uh, what is known as a three-inch scholar. Maybe you've heard that. Three-inch scholar is called the three-inch scholar because it's the gap between the ear and the mouth. Right? It comes from here, it goes out here. Three-inch scholar. Quickly becomes that. If we don't embody it, if we don't experience it. So Zhuangsha's example here is, is brilliant. Right? He's using... Medicine and poison at the same time. And then he's giving us the option to get trapped or be free. If you see, hear, or speak, you're blind, deaf, and mute, and will not be able to help others. But then, if you do not see, hear, or speak, 
you are blind, deaf and mute and will become a living manifestation of the Buddha Dharma. It sounds confusing, but no, it's not. It sounds confusing logically, intellectually. Because we don't hear correctly. We don't hear at all. The eye, the ear, the mouth are the gateways through which we interact with the environment, with other people. And when we don't view them correctly, we don't view things correctly, or use them correctly, we end up perpetuating conflicts with one another, poison the water we drink from, pollute the air we breathe. And this all begins by being the one who has an ear and is feeling offended by what is heard. Or being the one who has an eye and feels violated by what is seen. And then being the one who will use the mouth to defend an imagined entity with harsh words. No, we, there's so much there. We have to be responsible for how we use these senses. We don't really spend much time thinking about the tools. We go directly to what the tool is pointing at or perceiving. It's a good tool, but also very inaccurate. So the deaf, blind and mute manifesting here the sickness of the ear, the sickness of the eye and the sickness of the mouth. And then there is the deaf, blind and mute who manifest the medicine of the ear, the medicine of the eye and the medicine of the mouth. Right? It's the same mouth that can focus on healing. Right speech. Buddhism basics, right? Right speech. So what makes the difference? I often say that, say that we need to go back to the womb. We need to go back to where it all began for us, in a way. Be like infants again. Then use, the, use those three correctly. Right? Before we have accumulated all the garbage that we cherish so much. To be like an infant, again, at last. 
And it's a process of losing the ear, eye, and mouth while using the ear, eye, and mouth. And it has to be worked on in real time. Not, I'm going to do some work on it and then 5, 10, 15 years, I will emerge as the one who has realized. We don't wait. We do the best we can. We work on it on the go. It's the same with Aikido training. We, we practice at different levels. But we don't practice theoretically. We don't spend time off the mat before we're ready to get on the mat and actually practice. We get on the mat and we practice working on staying stable while in motion, working on staying stable while being attacked, having to flow, having to redirect the attack and execute a, a technique. And that's how we sharpen the skill. Very much like Zazen has to be sharpened in everyday life. Going to work, dealing with people at work, dealing with family members, dealing with challenges, dealing with paying the bills. That's where we have to find the balance, centeredness, breath, supple, supple movement, agility. Maintain state of being while being bombarded by everyday challenges. And then when we cultivate disability, we can make adjustments on the go. Yeah, sometimes we do better, sometimes we don't do so well with it, but still, it's the only way to really get good at it whether it's Aikido or Zen practice. So the actualization of our training, of Zen training, is, is exactly like that. Most of the time we're engaged in everyday activities with other people. And the practice is asking us to constantly work on awareness. Awareness of staying connected, staying rooted, staying grounded, not losing it. So I mentioned that in relation to staying heavy from the waist down, rooted, grounded, staying light and movable. Light and movable means not getting offended, not making a story, not creating issues. Not explaining why. Here's why I messed up. Well, it doesn't matter. Fix it. We're so vested in defending that we want to spend a lot of time explaining why we did something the way we did it. But who cares? This is where actually we need to be a little bit, we need muteness at this point. We need to shut up and just do we need to learn to speak less. 
And every, every moment, every opportunity, every encounter offers the opportunity to enter into that state, into that seamlessness. Right? If we don't practice or live by an idea of later, or by an idea of compartments or different rooms. A monk who came to study once with Zhuangsha said, I've just arrived here, and I beg the master to point out a gate whereby I may enter. He wasn't talking about entering the monastery. He was talking about entering. Zhuangsha said, Do you hear the sound of the water in Yan Creek? The monk said, Yes, I hear it. Zhuangsha said, That's the place of your entry. The monk was in awe and kept quiet for a while. Stopped his mind for a little bit. Later, he asked again, If I did not hear the sound of the water, what would you have told me then? Nidransha said, Enter from there. Because it's always open for everybody. It's open for everybody. It's just that the first time he answered, he got something there. Right? The mind stopped for a little while because, oh, there it is, it's available. And then, of course, he began thinking again. Yeah, but what if I would have, if I said no, what would he have said? What does it matter? Here it is. Or maybe he wasn't ready to enter. Sometimes we speak to buy time. I think sometimes we speak because we find some solace in our own voice. Some kind of comfort. Another monk asked Zhuangsha, Why can't I speak? Zhuangsha said, Close your mouth. Now, can you speak? Close your mouth. Now, can you speak? Now, we've been working on maintaining quiet here, not speaking. How does it feel? Do we feel deprived? Are we counting the minutes to the time that we can allow to speak again? Are we missing something? Are we lacking a mouth when the mouth is not blabbering? After Zhuangsha became the abbot, Mount, Mount Zhuangsha, that's where the name comes from in most of these cases. They have a name and then they are named after the mountain on which they reside and teach. So when he became the abbot, he entered the hall and addressed the monk saying, Buddha's way is vast and serene. There is no path on which to travel there. There is no gate of liberation. 
There are no thoughts about a person of the way. There are no three worlds. Therefore, one cannot transcend or fall into. Setting something up runs counter to the truth. Negation is, is affirmation. Movement gives rise to the root of birth and death. Stillness is the province of falling into delusion. Is he negating the practice? Or is he trying to shatter what we think about practice? And he says, when movement and stillness are extinguished, in other words, when the gaps are extinguished, one falls into empty negation. When movement and stillness are both accepted, Buddha nature is concealed. With respect to worldly affairs or states of mind, you should be like a cold dead tree, withered. Then you will realize the great function and will not forfeit its grace. All forms will be illuminated as if in a mirror. Brightness or obscurity will not confuse you. The bird will fly into emptiness. It will not be apart from empty form. Then in the ten directions, there will be no form. And in the three worlds, there will be no traces. So no path, no gate, no movement, no stillness, no obscurity, no gap. No clarity. Which means it cannot be seen, heard, or spoken of. And that's exactly how we need to see, hear, and speak. In fact, that's what happens when there is alignment. There is hearing, but you're not hearing. Now we talk about being in the world as a vehicle for goodness, or being of service to others, which means to function as a force of transformation. But how is this, how can this be possible? How does it work if we're not aware of the ear, eye, and mouth and their workings, and how they work in the service of an illusion. How can we do that if we don't even notice the true reasons for why we say what we say? How much energy we waste on defending what we create. So if we really trust that unity is the medicine, we have to truly look into unity and truly manifest it. It's the same eye, but it's not the same way. It's the same ear, same mouth. 
You know, I think practice is like mounting a coup to overturn a government. It's really, it's that radical. And it takes that kind of guts to go against the government or the governing forces that are moving or that we are moved by. And if we don't see it this way, we keep in the background this idea of comfort, the idea of self, the idea of I'm going to go back to when this is done, I'll go back to being free, we think. Going wherever I want, buying whatever I want to buy, enjoying whatever I want to enjoy. That's going back to being governed by that same government that we have to overturn. Otherwise, the eye, the ear, the mouth are used by that. Says blind, deaf, mute. First line. Paquin commented on this line saying, The whole koan is cited in one phrase. If you study it genuinely, there is no other instruction. If we do not study this thoroughly, the eye does not open. Blind, deaf, mute. Just that. And soundless, without any adjustments to potentiality. And the footnote says, where will you search? Can you make any judgments? And if you do, what, they have, what do they have to do with it? Do the judgments we create have anything to do with what we are judging? Do they really mean anything about what, about the subject of our judgment? Be it a person or a situation. We name it. We like or not like. But we stay in a cocoon. Not seeing. Yet believing we do. Do not judge by any standards. No standards. Do not invent standards. Then it says, in the heavens, on earth, laughable, lamentable, the footnote says, laugh at what? Lament over what? Half light, half dark. And when you realize what is trapping you, you actually do laugh. Or what you have been trapped by. There is that. You laugh out loud because it's kind of stupid. 
Then comes the sadness of seeing how suffering arises out of a mistake, an error. And this is necessary. We have to feel the sadness. We have to feel the pain. And often this is what happens when you realize there is this amazing sense of elation. But very quickly after that you realize that everybody's got it, yet everybody's stuck. And that makes you sad, you know, to see the people you care about, and not just people you know, to see how they create misery for themselves and others. And you want to help. That's where we actualize. That's how it works. So it's necessary that we go through those steps, those stages. You really truly feel pain in a different way. Other people's pain. Although you may not respond to it in the same conventional way that other people respond to pain. Meaning you won't flame the fire. So you may seem as if you don't care, but that seeming not caring is actually most compassionate. As I was saying yesterday about telling somebody, shut up. Of course, we don't see it as compassionate. Shut up, you speak too much. It's insulting, right? We think it's insulting, conventionally. But no. Shut up, you speak too much. Okay, let me do that for a little bit. Let me look within. Maybe I do. Maybe I speak too much because I'm nervous. Maybe I speak too much because I'm afraid to look at what's going on. Maybe I'm afraid to encounter. I know what I'm going to encounter and I don't want to encounter. Maybe many other reasons. Still, shut up is wonderful. Sit down, don't move. Wonderful. Li Lu can't discern the true form. Says blind men, the skillful craftsman leaves no traces. Truly blind. How can Shi Kuang recognize the mystic tomb? Then the footnote says, Deaf men, no reward has been established for the great achievement. Truly deaf. Lilu was known for having a great eyesight. And Shi Kuang was known for having incredible ability to hear. He says, neither one of them could discern the true color and transcend the sound of the essential world. We have to go back to Zazen. Just realize what time it is. Maybe I will shut up. 
I want to end with, uh, just to tie this together with humility, with a story about Rumi. And he portrays it very well. Once upon a time, a young man decided to leave his homeland and go to learn from the great teacher Rumi in Konya. After weeks of others travel, he finally reached the outskirts of Konya and saw a gracious presence walking towards him. The young man knew in his heart that this was Rumi, his teacher. So he dropped down to his knees in prostration before his great teacher. But as he got up, he saw that Rumi was actually prostrated in the dirt towards him. Amazed and embarrassed, the young man again prostrated himself. And again he found Rumi on the ground. This happened several times. Until the young man finally said, Why are you, my teacher, prostrating yourself in the dust before me, a mere seeker? Rumi simply replied, if I did not show you my nothingness, what would I be useful for? That's truly blind, deaf, mute. That's the power of a bow, actually. All the way down. There's not even space for the word humility to enter there. Total embodiment of humility. Total embodiment of it. To show nothingness. Which means to not be ashamed to appear utterly naked in front of everybody. Utterly poor. Having no self. No self to speak of. No self to defend. No self to whine about. No divisions between high and low, a teacher and a student. Maybe that's the only teaching we need. Having Rumi prostrating in front of us. There's just nothing to say. Everything is taken care of right there. Total giving is the only medicine for the sick world we are living in. So this is what we need to examine now for the rest of the time here. You know, all the thoughts, all the thoughts that come and go essentially represent that. And the only thing that will quell that is bowing deeply. Not giving the ear, the eye, the mouth to those thoughts. Not giving them to a false sense of self or any self. To just flatten it out completely and then, and then work with that as we move into whatever we move into tomorrow. Whatever we go back to. However we 
are required to function at home, at work. To offer completely and entirely, to offer everything we have realized, everything, to give it entirely to everybody we encounter. Even the person who fills your gas tanks, gas station. Give it all. Love this person entirely. And then you'll see what happens. If we do it this way, if we all do it this way, not only it helps, but it actually deepens your practice. And will send you back to the cushion. That's what we're here to do. Just that.